Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Today, we're joined by special guest Heather Evans. Heather is co-founder of VAST, Valley Against Sex Trafficking, and is here to discuss the nature of sex trafficking, how VAST is offering help and healing, and what you and your church can do as well. Let's listen in. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. We have a, a topic here uh, that we're going to be covering today that's very sensitive. It's, uh, it's very sobering. Um, it's a very serious issue, an issue that we're hearing a lot of talk about today, which is a good thing, um, but also an area where the church um, could use some good counsel and some good guidance in knowing how to, uh, to minister. And that's the issue of, of sexual trafficking. And it's our uh, privilege to have with us as a guest, Heather Evans. Heather is the co-founder of VAST, which stands for Valley Against Sex Trafficking. It's located in the Lehigh Valley um, in Pennsylvania. She's also a a counselor uh, with uh, Evans Counseling Services. And um, as you can imagine from the fact that she has co-founded uh, an organization that seeks to um, address the the uh, uh, the plague of sex trafficking. Heather um, uh, has not only a keen interest, but she has uh, a lot of experience that that we think would be very helpful for Christians and for the church uh, to learn from. So, first of all, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, Heather, just briefly, I wonder if you would just kind of sum up or, or give an overview of the work that VAST does. Sure. VAST has been in existence almost five years now. It was started with a colleague of mine and I, and when we were learning more about human trafficking and realizing that it didn't exist just in other countries, it existed in our own neighborhoods. And we knew our Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania region did not know about that, and that we were called to respond. And so we started this coalition along with other colleagues who had interest with the goal of raising awareness in the issue of sex trafficking, what it looks like in the United States and what it looks like in our region. So we do a variety of things. We do a lot to raise awareness, both just in, in the community, in churches, with service providers, law enforcement, judges, kind of you name it. We try to cover every area where we provide trainings and awareness events to make people more aware, but we really have a goal of uniting a group of people, equipping them and mobilizing them to take action. So VAST is completely volunteer run and led, and our goal is really to get people involved in this issue. So not only do we raise awareness, but we also are involved with legislative advocacy, outreach, and then working directly with survivors of human trafficking. So we often work alongside law enforcement and receive referrals from them. And then we, once those women are identified, our goal is to really stabilize them and support them during the prosecution process. And so we do that in a variety of ways from referring them to services they might need and really providing the safety social support network that they don't have Mm -hmm. so that they um, can rebuild their lives and can have the resources that they need to heal and gain independence and again move forward towards a successful prosecution and beyond that's a very quick overview of what we do that's awesome and i wonder just for for folks who are trying to 
they, they've heard the term sex trafficking, mm-hmm. um, but might not understand what all is. In, it's not just a single uh, action. There's actually several things under the umbrella of sex trafficking, things that are, of course, very illegal, but also things that might not necessarily be illegal, but are certainly dehumanizing and, and, and sinful. What are some of the things that are captured under this category of sex trafficking? Sure. Well, first I'll say that um, sex trafficking actually falls under the umbrella of human trafficking and labor trafficking is another form of human trafficking. We have chose to really focus on sex trafficking because it is the most prevalent in the United States. So in general, sex trafficking, the definition, according to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of a person by means of the threat or use of force, fraud, coercion, or deception for the purpose of exploitation. Now, that's a mouthful. I think the most important point there is force, fraud, and coercion, which basically means someone is forced or they are coerced or tricked into the commercial sex industry or someone who is under the age of 18. We don't need to prove force, fraud, or coercion. Mm -hmm. So what is the commercial sex industry? Well, it it could include what we might typically know as prostitution, which could happen on the streets, but oftentimes happens online today and in hotels. It could, sex trafficking could take place in pornography or massage parlors or spas, truck stops, hotels, escort services. And we often think that trafficking means that somebody is brutally kidnapped, Mm -hmm. somebody has moved across borders, Mm -hmm. and that may or may not be the case. Oftentimes, sex trafficking starts with an individual who is vulnerable being lured into the commercial sex industry. No one says, I want to become a prostitute when I grow up. Mm -hmm. And a pimp or a trafficker doesn't approach a girl and say, do you, do you want to be a prostitute? Yeah. It's a long process of um, engaging them, showing interest in them, buying nice things, and eventually um, seasoning them and recruiting them and usually being quite violent in, in um, bringing them into the commercial sex industry where they work in prostitution. Um, and then during that time, they're controlled, um, maybe controlled by substances, maybe controlled by physical or sexual violence. And uh, basically that woman is totally reliant upon that individual. I, I say, you know, I, I'm using he and she typically because victims are most often females and traffickers are most often males, but it could be there are male victims and there are female traffickers. Mm-hmm. That trafficker controls that woman, most mostly controls them psychologically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I, that point that you made too, because um, you, I've read something you've written about this where you say you know, people don't want to know. They don't want to mm-hmm. believe that it's true and they deny that it's happening. And I think so often when we do think of sex trafficking, we don't think of it as something local that mm-hmm. that is in our communities. We think of it as something that's out there, maybe even in you know, a completely different culture. And um, so if you could just talk about why why it's important for us to have awareness now. Why why is this an important issue for churches? And um, what is it that we need to understand about the women who have been um, involved in this and, and have a history and experience in sex trafficking? Yeah, I think it's, it's important for us to understand um, 
as the church, just because it's a real issue. And God calls us to have the perspective, the heart and mind of Christ, and to face reality with that heart and mind. He calls us to remember those who are suffering as if we ourselves are mistreated. So if we're turning a blind eye, or if we're saying, oh, this is too much, or it's too overwhelming, or it's too painful, or it's not really happening here, and we're not being responsible to engage and find out, then we're not really following Christ as, as the way he entered in to people's lives. So that's one brief reason as to why. But another reason is that it does exist. It isn't just happening over there. It is happening here in mm -hmm. every neighborhood. And we um, are more familiar with prostitution, but I don't think we all often realize what's involved with prostitution and the connection with prostitution and trafficking. Statistics say that 85 to 95% of prostitution is pimp controlled. Mm -hmm. Pimp is just a more glamorized mm -hmm. word for human trafficker. That's right. a more accurate term for what's happening. Mm -hmm. Wherever there is prostitution, there is sex trafficking happening. The average age that someone enters in to prostitution in the United States is 12 to 13. So mm -hmm. by definition, they are sex trafficking right. victims. We often look at prostitutes and we say, yeah, but she's choosing that. And I think that illusion of choice is a real obstacle with this whole issue of, of being aware, because we don't realize that statistically in the United States, 90% of women who are in prostitution have been sexually abused as a child. So she has had something happen to her that has shaped her beliefs about men, about her body, about sexuality, and it prepares her and makes her vulnerable for something later in life. And then when you look at what happens with the bond that's formed, when, um, when a trafficker recruits a woman who is oftentimes someone who's vulnerable and isolated, you realize that the way he shapes her she didn't really have a choice. Her vulnerability and then the way he controls her, she, she she was lured into it. She was deceived into it. And it's not easy to just run away and leave. I think those are some important things for us to consider when we consider what human trafficking, what sex trafficking actually is. From what you've said, Heather, it sounds as if this is something that, you know, well, I, I pastor a church that I would describe as having a, a kind of respectable blue collar stroke middle class mm -hmm. profile good people decent people but it sounds from what you're saying as if this is something that's that's never very far from from home what would be the signs that as a pastor i would look for that there may be an issue either with victims or perpetrators of sex trafficking yeah. in my congregation yeah well um those who are who are often recruited into the commercial sex industry are those who are vulnerable, those who are isolated. And I have been surprised that every neighborhood in our Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania region, which has a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, there have been victims, even from my more upper middle class school district, there have been victims from our school district that we have heard of and, and have encountered. So victims happen and it could be just because there's a vulnerability there, there's an isolation there or some type of abuse or 
dysfunction in her household that makes her really not aware of what type of attention um, to look for and what not to look for. So regarding the victim, you can be looking out for those who are vulnerable and any changes in behavior or school attendance or maybe having an older boyfriend or any changes in the way that they dress or even the kinds of clothing that they wear or the kinds of accessories that they have or even tattoos because sometimes traffickers will brand girls with a certain tattoo. So any type of change in that type of behavior or running away from home, not coming home at night, those types of things might we might look for. I think another thing we have to consider regarding our middle class churches is the connection with pornography mm. and, com- and the commercial sex industry. It's the fuel for the commercial mm. sex industry. And I mean, in terms of the images and how women are portrayed, but even some um, sometimes women are victimized who are involved in pornography. I was involved um, in a prostitution sting, just observing what was happening. And I was really, um, I knew the statistics, but to see it firsthand that the men who were being arrested as buyers of these women were men who are educated, mm. professionals, theology students, um, people who had higher education and more white collar type professions. And those are the individuals that are at risk in our churches in terms of anyone who's involved with pornography Mm. or beyond. Um, Those are some of the things that we need to consider and really know about in making our every neighborhood aware of these these dangers. You know, Heather, one of the things you you mentioned there, which really resonated just based upon some things I observed when I lived in the Philadelphia area, is um, this idea, and, and, and it ties in some with, with the question Carl just asked, is, as, as pastors and church members, as we, as we look around and see uh, girls who are vulnerable, you've, you've emphasized this issue of, of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I saw uh, when I lived in Philadelphia, I had a friend uh, drive me through Camden, New Jersey in the middle of the day, and we saw... Um, prostitutes, some of them were clearly teenage girls mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the middle of the day. They were there. And and what he explained to me is that one of the things they found in Camden is that high school girls living in upper middle class areas like Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, someone introduces them to drugs, they become addicted, and before too much longer, it goes from sneaking out at night and some of those types of troubling behavioral patterns to then with some of them uh, becoming so dependent upon drugs that they that they become dependent upon a person who then begins mm-hmm. to pimp them out. And so mm-hmm. you, you have literally formerly, quote, nice upper middle class teenage girls from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, who are now zoned out on drugs, walking the streets of Camden, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I thought, you know, I wonder as, as, as people like myself, pastors and, and church members, as we think about our own daughters, as we think about our friends' daughters mm-hmm. and some of the risks they have, do we ever consider the vulnerability in yeah. this particular, because it is a growth industry. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a case here where we worked with four victims and they were exploited by their drug dealers. And again, similar to what you're describing, just what you would consider your normal high school Mm -hmm. students became involved Mm. with heroin and became involved with these guys as their drug dealers. And then those drug dealers started selling them as prostitutes and would use their addiction as a way of controlling them. So would punish them by making them start to go through the terrible 
um, withdrawal signs of heroin um, would reward them or pay them mm -hmm. with heroin. Um, so addiction is definitely a complex thing that is involved with human trafficking victims. Mm -hmm. It's a tool of the traffickers right. and then it becomes a way of coping for the horrific trauma right. of what they go through. Um, if a girl has, let's say she has to have five customers a night, which is a very low number, mm -hmm. the number would probably be more like 12 up into 20, um, which mm -hmm. would be the average amount of customers per night. But let's just say she has five customers a night and she does that seven days a week for one year. That's the equivalent of 1,820 forced sexual encounters. Mm. That's horrific. And then you you start to, you, you know, you just talked about the vulnerability of our teen girls and what are we doing to protect that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And then you hear that and you realize the layers of trauma yeah. that these ladies have. And addiction not only can lead them into this and make them vulnerable, it can then become a barrier for their restoration and for their healing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, can you describe like some of the work that you've done um, in aftercare? Because mm -hmm. um, I think we look at sex trafficking and someone who is involved in helping um, the cause as kind of a glamorous thing in some mm -hmm. ways. But um, there's so much work to be done even after you would were to rescue or pull somebody out of that environment in the healing process. Can you um, talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. There are a lot of obstacles for the healing process. One is an individual, she's used to having a survival mentality. She's used to just getting by. And that usually did not just start when she was being trafficked. That started somewhere very early on in her childhood and what was going on in her childhood. She gets used to that and it becomes very difficult for her to accept anything different, including what we would think are great things like safety and stability and structure and support. And those things are very foreign and threatening to her. Mm. So she has then the complexity of layers of trauma that goes back to her childhood most likely and then includes with the physical and sexual violence of being involved in trafficking. She has trust issues because she has been taught that the only one she can really love and trust is her trafficker and no one else can be trusted. Social workers, family members, law enforcement cannot be trusted and sometimes there's good reason that you know she, she might believe that but she oftentimes has a bond to her trafficker and is conflicted if she testifies against him she's conflicted by that she loves him but then she's starting to work through some of the physical violence so that just gives you an idea of what we're encountering when we meet a woman and we're encountering a woman that usually needs everything and has nothing. She may have no clothing. She may not have shelter. She may have a drug addiction and needs some type of treatment. She, um, of course, needs counseling for those layers of trauma, but she's nowhere near ready for that counseling if she doesn't have the basic necessities mm. of food, clothing, and shelter. So the first thing we do is come alongside her. And this is a group of, again, volunteers. We, we call upon these interested individuals who are from local churches. We call upon service providers and we get her the resources that she needs in terms of food, clothing, and shelter, and any kind of referral. Um, we may need to help her get an ID in order to get her into rehab. Um, we may, we may um, need to help her give her transportation to help her get to appointments, to meet with law enforcement, to meet with doctors. So we just like seek to come alongside her in very tangible practical ways and provide, as I said before, that social safety support network. So we have volunteers that meet with our ladies to um, help 
tutor them to study for their GED. We had someone recently help tutor a girl to take um, her permit exam so that she could go for her driver's license. Mm -hmm. We help them get into shelters that are specifically trafficking informed and trauma informed. We connect them with counselors who can kind of go deeper. Um, We do anything that they need to help give them a social safety support network and to stabilize them and hopefully move them towards a place of independence. I will say it's been very rewarding um, because we are at a point where we have several women who are really wanting to now take on more leadership and want to use their voice in this movement and and um, to advocate for others and to reach out to others. But I will say, speaking to what you said about um, it seems very glamorous, it's true. This issue kind of is a, a pop word right now where mm-hmm. we we um, we hear it and we I, so many people say, oh, you're involved with, with uh, human trafficking? Oh, that's so cool. Oh, mm-hmm. that's so great. Mm-hmm. And I say, really, it's really not that cool. It's yeah. not glamorous. It's largely unrewarding work. It's messy. It's tedious. It's slow. It's complicated. There's tons of barriers. Yeah. It's repetitious. It's necessary, but it's not glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. And also just um, as far as how many of these women can move on, what have you seen with how many women are able to, I don't even know if normal is the right word, but to to enter society and get jobs and to stay out of the drug environment and the, the, the pimps and the abusers, you know, to keep away from them? It's a, it's a good mix. Um, we have some women who are, well, let me just start by saying, speaking to what you said about quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. I've had to redefine my expectations for normal and healing and restoration so many times in this and really kind of lay those aside and be willing to sit with them with where they're at. Many women will go back into the life several times before they eventually leave it. And so we have to watch that. We have to watch them become re-exploited or re-exploit themselves. We've watched them relapse. We've lost track of some. And then there are some that are doing really well. And there are some that are, I mean, really well is relative, but Mm -hmm. that are struggling, um, but they're getting jobs or they're in programs and those programs are helping them heal and helping them move to a place where they're ready to um, reconcile with family members. They're ready to move out on their own, they're ready to have jobs, and they're ready to also be a part of this work and take on more leadership in the advocacy of this work. So it's a wide variety, but I would say statistically, there's a lot of disappointment, and we have to be prepared to watch many people continue to make choices that may be self-destructive, because it's just part of the long journey of them getting to a place of healing, and not everyone does. Hmm. Heather, one of the things that often perplexes, well, it doesn't perplex me, but interests me about people in the line of work that, that you've chosen, uh, how, do you, how do you stop being sucked into this stuff? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you go to bed and sleep at night? How do you keep your own mind clean, if I could put it that way, when, when you're surrounded by such awful... I mean, all of us are surrounded by depravity, but most of us are surrounded by a kind of polite depravity, if I could put it that way. You're surrounded by depravity of a very raw and obvious kind. How do you, how do you not become cynical? How do you yeah. not despair? That's a really good question. And I would say, to start, I've had to realize that, you know, there is a cost to this work. 
because to it's a there's a way of doing this work that it's actually entering into the sufferings of Christ. It's fellowshipping with his, his sufferings because he grieves when he sees evil and injustice. And so there's there's a reality to that that I don't want to ever lose my heart for this work. I want to still get angry at sin and I want mm-hmm. to still mourn alongside of those who are oppressed. However, we do need to take care of ourselves. And um, one of my greatest influences is Diane Langberg. And she taught me that we need antidotes for this work. We are image bearers, which means we become like that which we reflect upon. And if I am marinating myself day in, day out with trauma and evil and suffering and darkness, I'm going to start looking like that. I will lose hope. And so she's encouraged me to really find anything that returns me to the image of our creator. So involve myself and practice things that include order and beauty that are life-giving and light. And so I really try to find different ways that I take care of myself and get out in nature or exercise or spend time with my nieces and nephews. I work with young people for a long time in youth ministry at my church, and I found that to be the most life-giving aspect Mm -hmm. of my life um, because there's something about investing in young people and the energy and the just they're just life-giving. So just being really intentional about my self-care is important. And I have had a lot of questions for God, and I have really resonated with many of the laments in the Psalms and the way they just cry out to God and they remind themselves of his character and his promises for justice. It is, it's messy work and it is work that has a cost because it causes you to grieve, it causes you to question, but it's necessary work. And I will say it's been a big part of what's shaped me and what's discipled me. Hmm. Heather, you make, a, I think, a really valuable point about the fact that this is not a glamor um, ministry position. It, it's It's messy and it's tedious and it's hard and it's, and it's costly. And so given the fact that this is, I mean, we're, we're grateful that a lot of people are talking about this because it needs a light shown on it. Um, but also people need to count the cost before mm-hmm. they enter into a ministry. What would you say to a congregation mm-hmm. that is committed to the truth, committed to the gospel, um, and therefore really does want to to be a refuge for people who have been harmed mm-hmm. by this crime and by this sin? I know I know that there's all kinds of things you could say, and that's a big question, but off the top of your head, what would be a few things that you would urge upon a congregation that is saying, we want to welcome into our congregation people who are seeking Christ, who have been deeply, deeply damaged by this problem? Yeah, I was going to ask if we had another hour because you just hit on something I'm extremely passionate about. I would say, first of all, I would commend them if they have that interest. Um, I would To quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says that the sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight of responsibility, mm-hmm. meaning we just would rather look the other way mm-hmm. and run from being responsible. But one advocate of human trafficking has said, once you know the truth, you can't keep silent. Silence is complicity and we become a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. We are called to take action. We are called to say, how can I use my skills, my gifts, my talents, my corners of influence to take action and make a difference to eradicate modern day slavery from happening in my 
local region. That's what we're called to do as believers. Mm -hmm. So I would commend them. And then I would say it is so important to become educated and to become trained because it's one thing to be a well-intentioned Christian with a lot of heart, but we can do a lot of damage if we're not informed of what trauma is and the complexities of someone who's been involved with human trafficking. It's not good enough just to have a big heart. We have to be wise and discerning in the way that we go about doing this. And if we go in with rescue mentalities as Christians, we will harm these ladies. If we go in thinking we have all kinds of ways that we're going to help them, we may lose sight of the fact that we are re-exploiting them Hmm. with our attempts to help them. We are coercing them into help rather than restoring their voice, restoring their power. So we have to be very careful with how we go about helping. But the opportunities are endless. And the opportunities for an individual to be changed by this work are endless. Um, someone once said that the work of justice is some of the most fertile ground for discipleship, and I would totally agree with that. Um, there are so many ways that a church can come alongside a woman, but they have to ask themselves, am I a safe congregation? What would happen if a woman entered into this congregation this Sunday, would she feel welcome? Would she feel shame? How would we look at her? How would we view her? How would we approach her? Would she have a redeeming experience where she's being treated with honor and with dignity? Or would would she feel ostracized? Would she feel separated? So we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to become safe communities? Mm -hmm. But then I would say that the opportunity just to restore dignity and honor by entering into a woman's life the way Christ entered into evil and suffering when he took on flesh. The opportunities are endless and they are so worth it. They are so, so valuable. The trauma healing happens by it happens in community and it happens by restoring a victim's voice and giving back her power and helping her form safe relationships that's what the body of christ should be all about of community and giving a person an opportunity to be treated with honor and dignity restoring her voice restoring her power and giving her safe relationships i'd like to just um read a quote that comes from one of the women we work with. And I I asked her, I said, what do you think the church needs to hear about women who are involved in prostitution or sex trafficking? And she said this, because of the nature of the commercial sex industry, most women will feel like they will be judged. It's Mm -hmm. shameful once we come to terms with the ugliness of our own sin. It's very difficult to feel that we are worthy of love and even understand God the Father's work. What helped me was the tenderness, the Mm. fact that women came to my rescue and were kind. God revealed himself through those women. I saw and I felt his presence. Every woman has been in the business is a wounded, broken spirit. In this situation, the best advice I have is to allow God's love to flow through us. He knows what each woman's need will be and through our faith in him, he will give us the words to encourage, strengthen and rebuild. She's a woman that has profound wisdom for us. And she's basically saying, it doesn't take a lot. Show love, Mm -hmm. show honor, and just showing up and revealing God's love is healing in itself. Mm. Uh, As you're saying all that, I'm just thinking of the connections in the church, too, of just... um, sex abuse that happens in the church. It might not be sex trafficking, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, in fa- within families and um, 
churches are really, I think, taking note of that more and implementing more ways to, to have a safe environment in the church. But one thing that you said that really makes me um, perk up is just what you're saying about listening well and the need mm-hmm. for us to, to listen to people who come forward. Um, do we have an environment where they are honored by being listened to mm-hmm. if they've been abused? And um, you have, have written some things about what you've learned about listening. I want to wanted to ask you to share some of that if you could. Sure. Um, I, I talk in something I wrote about listening to traffickers. I talk about how listening well is a cross-cultural experience and we really need to have that mentality um, and be willing to enter into a different world and enter in as students, not the teachers, but students of who we are listening to. We have to be humble, willing to engage and willing to hear really difficult, painful messy things. But when we listen well, it restores value and dignity to a person. It, um, I say effective listening magnifies her strengths, resilience, courage, and capacities to survive, which will in turn enable her to be restored. Listening well revives a voice that has been silenced. Listening honors her. Listening teaches and changes the listener because through listening, we enter in to suffering, evil, and darkness. Yet it will bring us closer to Christ who entered in that we might be changed, redeemed, and glorified. Listening brings healer to the speaker and to the listener as it can make us look more like Christ. I love what you say about that too, that, you know, the listening changes us too, as we enter into the suffering and evil and and the darkness and, and lean on Christ who entered in to our suffering. That's such a good point. You know, I'm, I'm struck, y'all, by by just some of these thoughts about our churches and 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 how the church can can welcome one who has been so damaged in, in this area. Because if if a, a woman comes into our church who is who who the Lord is bringing out of prostitution and drug addiction and, and these kinds of things, she's not going to look and sound like everybody else in a mm-hmm. in a typical. Uh, you know, church where most of our people are fairly well behaved and have no experience <laughs> in in those kinds of things, and and I think about I think about what was what was more ordinary for for some of the recipients of Paul's letters, and so you think about the church at Corinth, and you know, Paul's still having to remind these first Absolutely. century Christians that they're not prostitutes anymore. You know that they're not uh, temple prostitutes. They're not homosexuals anymore. They're not swindlers anymore. Um, you know, and I'm I'm trying to think of a of a time where I would need to say that you know to my congregation. I, mm-hmm. I don't have anybody in my congregation that I need to remind them, you know, that they're not a prostitute anymore, that they're not a swindler anymore. But so um, th- this would present a, a a new opportunity to um, uh, to to bring to light certain texts of scripture that uh, maybe are are more ordinary church members uh, have a hard time relating to, but, but they need to be ready. They need to be ready that, that, that there will be this one or these ones who might say some things or look in, in certain ways that, that are different. And, and will this congregation be a, a refuge for them? That's one of the ways that I, I think moves us into some challenging areas for us. I think some can rise to that challenge easy and others might really struggle with it. Yeah, I have a few things I could say about that. One, it just reminds me that 
for most of most of us um, who are listening, there may be some listeners who live in the middle of a city and they know exactly where mm-hmm. where to go to meet up with prostitutes and to interact with them. But most of us, they're not going to come through our doors. Mm-hmm. So that means us finding, you know, reaching out to those who are vulnerable in our surrounding areas and maybe getting involved in seeing if there's any kind of local coalition in the area um, of our listeners or right. a home that is for women who mm-hmm. have been sexually exploited. Because for the Christians in our area, they've come to coalition meetings and that's how they get involved. and th- Or they've gone to a local therapeutic home and they volunteer there and they work with the woman there and they mentor her there. And eventually those women build relationships and start coming with them to church. So we have to be willing mm-hmm. to go out in order for them to enter in. Yeah. That's the first thing I would say. And then I just want to give a couple quick examples that I think speak to what you're talking about. There's a woman named Rachel Lloyd who's written a book called Girls Like Us, and she does work with an organization called GEMS in New York City. In her book, she's a former, um, she's a trafficking survivor, so a former victim, and she shares two examples of Uh, that are church-related. One, going into a church, and it was shortly after her time of leaving the commercial sex industry or leaving the life, as they call it, and um, they did not like the length of her skirt and asked her to put a a blanket over her legs, and that felt was very shameful for her. Mm -hmm. Um, That was an example of us expecting her to look exactly like them and not being willing to just work with her and meet her where she's at. But then she tells us another story of meeting with a young Christian couple in their home and interacting with them, just talking with the woman. The husband came out and asked the wife to uh, make him something. And she said, sure, I'll make that in a minute. 20 minutes goes by, the woman forgot to deliver the cup of tea or whatever it was. He comes back out, makes it for himself and says, no problem. Rachel Lloyd starts crying and says, why didn't he hit you? Hmm. And she said, what? This woman didn't know her full background at that point, didn't know her story. What do you mean? Why didn't he hit you? Why didn't he hit you? You forgot to do that. It was this redeeming moment where she saw a man and the way he treated his wife. And it was so powerful and healing for her because she was seeing an example of what love and marriage and relationships should be like and how a woman should be treated. That's an example of how we can really incarnationally minister to these women and represent Christ well and give an example of something they've never seen or tasted before. Well, as we draw things to a close, I want to thank you very much, uh, Heather, for spending time with us today. Um, Thank you. Just make a comment. I think a lot of churches are very well aware of things like crisis pregnancy centers. A lot of Christians volunteer uh, to organizations involved in helping uh, women who don't want to have abortions. Uh, It seems from what we've heard in the last half hour that an equally pressing problem perhaps in society today is sex trafficking. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. time for the church to expand its its volunteer imagination and think of helping uh, to volunteer with with organizations of the kind that, that Heather's described this morning. So to that end, on our website, uh, mortificationofspin.org, we're going to include some links uh, with this week's program to uh, organizations and resources that maybe have helped to our listeners. We'd like to ask our listeners to uh, be faithful in prayer for Christians such as Heather who are working in this uh, frontline capacity. Not everybody 
can work on the front line, but everybody can certainly pray for those who work on the front line. And, well, we hope that we've given you all plenty to think about this week, and uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. On today's podcast, we heard a brief account from Rachel Lloyd's life. If you'd like to read more from Rachel Lloyd, go to the podcast page at mortificationofspin.org to enter to win a copy of her book, Girls Like Us. During her teens, Rachel Lloyd ended up a victim of commercial sexual exploitation. With time, through incredible resilience, and with the help of a local church community, she finally broke free of her pimp and her past and devoted herself to helping other young girls escape the life. We think you'll find this book helpful. We hope you'll join us next week when the gang breaches the topic of the current sexual revolution in America. Well, these things are far-reaching, and they have huge implications for what is going to be going on in our schools and how our children's minds are going to be conditioned in regard to this. The new sexual revolution, what are we seeing? Is it as bad as it seems? And what are some of the pastoral implications? How, How should the church be talking to parents and their children about this issue? I think it's as bad as it looks. And I think that One thing that isn't new from the 60s and 70s is the way this is being pushed forward with propaganda. Mm -hmm. It really takes away people's freedom to make decisions based on truth, and they don't even know what's happening. Join us for that next time. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to enter to win Girls Like Us by Rachel Lloyd and to find helpful links and articles by Carl, Amy, and Todd.